Welcome to the Essay for FA's Asset Allocator Podcast, a series that addresses issues of current interest to financial advisors, including ETFs, asset allocation, and the economy. I'm your host, Gil Weinrich of Seeking Alpha, and today I am delighted to have as my guest stock analyst Ian Bezik, who runs Ian's Insider Corner, an exclusive marketplace service hosted by Seeking Alpha. An independent analyst based in Latin America, Ian formerly served as an analyst for hedge fund Carisdale Capital. There's a certain wisdom to investment selection, and we're going to glean some of it in just a moment. But first, this message. If you're a financial advisor, you should be using Seeking Alpha Premium. I'll mention just two items I personally think are valuable for advisors. Number one, advisors typically get investment research from their own broker-dealer and it's good to cross-reference that with the research available to Seeking Alpha Premium subscribers. Number two, the quantitative ratings available to premium subscribers are an incredible value add because they make it possible to compare investments with mutually consistent data. In other words, it aids in getting different investment ideas to talk to each other, as it were. These features are just the tip of the iceberg, and it costs only $240 for an annual subscription. Click on Upgrade on the top right of your Seeking Alpha homepage to see a full list of benefits and options. I'm really excited to have Ian Bezik on our show. I will admit that having been in this business for over two decades, I've earned my share of cynicism about analysts and stock pickers. In my mind, however, Ian stands out from the crowd. Having read his analyses for years now, I find that they are always well-informed and well-reasoned. Indeed, I find him to be quite persuasive. Today's stock market is no less bewildering than any other. So let's see together if we can make some sense of it. Ian, welcome to our show. Thank you. It's great to be on. The pleasure is ours. There's a lot to discuss here. Let's get right into stocks. One of the things I like about your analyses is they strike me as grounded in reality. Less about going for 10 baggers with all the risk that that entails and more about buying something whose value currently goes unrecognized, but whose built-in characteristics will reward investors for years to come once investors come back to their senses. Is this an accurate assessment? And could you discuss your investment in Hormel and other stocks that meet this criterion? Yes, that's an accurate assessment of my style. I would say that I focus on quality first. I would rather buy great companies at fair prices rather than okay companies at good prices. When you buy a great company, you are putting the, the time in your favor. The longer you own a great company with every quarter, with every year, the intrinsic value there goes up. And so the odds of making mistakes are much lower just in that the things are heading up and to the right as time goes on. Whereas when you buy a lower quality company, maybe maybe the Graham style trying to buy dollars for 60 cents, uh, you can make more money if you're right and your catalyst plays out quickly, like the company sells itself or you have some sort of spin-off, some sort of catalyst to make the make the event happen. But if nothing happens with every passing quarter, you're losing value. Like you have the opportunity cost. Maybe your your nav is going down over time because the deal's not happening and it's just inherently not a good company. They're not good capital allocators. That's why it was cheap in the first place. And then you have the tax drag as well. Every time you're you're trading in and out of stuff, you're losing money on slippage to taxes and transactions. And so I would rather buy a great company where I don't need to trade every quarter, every year, ideally a, a long holding time. That brings you to something like Hormel, where in 2016, 2017, um, the concerns about 
packaged foods companies, how they're losing relevance in modern times, supposedly. The stock lost 35-40% of its value. It was its biggest drawdown, dating all the way back to 1990, like, as bad as the the great financial crisis, as bad as 2000, because people didn't want this asset class anymore. And maybe that makes sense for a General Mills or a Kraft, uh, Campbell's, where there's not those brands aren't as relevant with consumers anymore. However, with Hormel, you have niche products like guacamole, organic meats, uh, things that, that are not uh, as competitive. You have a debt-free company. You have the Hormel Foundation, a charitable trust, which owns half of the company. So they're not selling uh, by their mandate. They've used the dividends to fund uh, their charitable works. The dividend's gone up more than 50 years in a row. And so when you get to buy this thing at a 30 or 40% discount, that's a tremendous opportunity to just buy it and then hold it for the next five, 10 years. You're going to do well. So you like Hormel better than others in its class. But let's talk about some of the others in this class. Some of them are so cheap. Something like Kraft Heinz, for example, is that worth considering even? Yes, it's worth considering. And I should disclose I own a small position. I, I own much more Hormel than I own Kraft, but I do own a little bit of Kraft Heinz. The issue there is that you have a lot of leverage. It's barely an investment grade company at this point. Um, there's a lot of uncertainty. They may want to cut the dividend again. So you're dealing with a more complex situation uh, that requires more you need to watch every quarter and make sure that they're, they're paying down their debt. They don't make any more bad M&A. So it's just a more complicated situation and there's more ways that your value there could be permanently impaired. But I do think it's, it's worth considering. I think the death of brands is a little bit overdone. Sure, they're not as powerful as they used to be, but they're not going away. Let's talk about the most hated left for dead sector there is, energy. You made very large gains with a short in this space with Antero, and I understand that you recently made a surprising purchase in this space. Could you share your thinking on oil, gas, and energy resources? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think if you look at the energy projections out to about 2040, it's clear that we are still going to need oil and natural gas. Obviously, we're moving towards green energy. Look at the run in Tesla stock lately. People are very excited. But you look at the actual the composition of electricity around the world, and you're still looking at green energy being something like 5% of the overall mix now. Maybe that gets to 10 15% over the next decade, but it's not going to 50% anytime soon. This, there's many limits in terms of space for solar the rare minerals that you need to build these things. And so people that are extrapolating uh, that, that oil and natural gas are going away tomorrow, or they should review their basic economics. And with that in mind, the fuel that gets phased out most quickly is coal, the most damaging to the environment. And at this point, natural gas is as cheap or cheaper for many uses. And so that leaves a future where oil and natural gas are still in high demand for at least the next 20 years. And yet investors are starting to price them as if they could go away very soon, particularly with these ESG funds that are forced sellers of all these stocks. And so that's created a, a value opportunity in the market where you have irrational selling due to their fund mandates. And there simply hasn't been enough buyers to make up for that. However, back to your question, why would I short something given given that outlook, you, once again, it comes back to leverage. You need to see which companies are going to stay in business, uh, which companies could get wiped out during this downturn. And you look at a company like Antero, it needs $3, arguably a little bit over $3 natural gas to make money. as hedges right now at $3 and it's still running cash flow negative. And then you look at the spot market and now natural gas is under $2. And so what happens once their hedges go away? 
they're, they're in deep trouble. If you're not making cash at $3 and the future <laughs> looks like $2 and you have several billion dollars of debt coming up over the next couple of years. So I think people are buying this and just figuring, oh, it was at $20 a couple of years ago. Now it's at $4. It's cheap, but you're, you're missing the point there and that the bondholders own the whole company essentially. And it would take a more than 50% recovery in natural gas within a year or two to, for the equity to have any value at all. That's just a bad bet. And there is a major integrated oil company you've recently purchased. Are you referring to Exxon? That's right. Yes, I just bought Exxon Tuesday. But yeah, it hit $60, nearly 6% dividend yield. And unlike a company like Antero, Exxon has a tremendous balance sheet. Uh, you have just $40 billion of debt against a company that does $300 billion a year in revenues. And so I'm not sure where people are getting this idea that the, the company is going to have issues funding its growth projects or its dividend, but $40 billion of debt against $300 billion of revenues is not at all problematic. It's one of the highest credit ratings of any U.S. corporate. And so you're buying the industry leader at its lowest price in 10 years, 2008, 2009 prices. The company remains highly profitable. You have the chemicals business that doesn't care where the price of oil is. Same for selling gasoline. Refining uh, margins are not especially tied to oil prices. And so you have built-in diversification within the company. I think you're looking at a similar situation to 1986, where oil just crashed after the huge run-up in the 70s. People are saying, oh, deflation's here, way too much oil. You're never going to have another bull market. Houston just collapsed as an economy. Like All the Texas banks were going belly up, and no one wanted anything to do with these energy companies. If you bought then, you got 13 14% annualized total returns going forward. ExxonMobil is a $250 billion company. Do you think it's possible, though, that there are maybe tiny $250 million companies with an M in oil field services that still have financial staying power and could shoot up with even greater force with a recovery in oil? Certainly, if, if oil and gas prices come back uh, more quickly than people are forecasting, the fulcrum point. The point where you will make the most money is companies where there's significant doubt about whether they can pay their debts, but they're not so far gone that they're going to have to give away the shop just to keep the lights on. I think natural gas, you can make a good argument that it, the market's probably going to bottom the end of this year, or maybe early in 2021. It appears supply is going to stop going up toward the end of this year, uh, and on oil probably next year you'll start the the shale bust is really starting to kick in in, in the permian i think you'll start seeing people reprice uh oil higher over the next year or two and then obviously there's been more middle eastern tensions as well recently and so who knows where that will go but people haven't been pricing in any middle east risk until recently I've argued that investors should be very interested in consumer staples companies on the basis that eventually will be appreciative of slow, steady earners when the market cycle shifts. Does your macro view align with this? And if not, how would you characterize your macro view? Yeah, I think that's correct. I think when you can get a 8 to 10% call it, uh, return outlook from a staple stock, a Coke, Pepsi, uh, Hormel, McCormick, these sorts of uh, Diageo and liquors. And when you can get that sort of return, it's particularly when bonds are yielding 2%, it's going to be very favorable to you. In general, to get an 8 to 10% total return, you're going to, if you're paying 20 times earnings, so that's a 5% earnings yield off the top, then you would need 3 to 5% earnings growth per year. 
to get your eight to ten percent total return, and I think that that's very realistic for a, a company like Pepsi. That's very much achievable, and so I think yeah, if if you're content to get that sort of return, which I think most people probably are, then that's a great place to go looking and. I expect interest rates to remain low for quite a while, and so I'm not sure why you would put. You have all these negative yielding bonds in Europe, for example. Why would I invest in something where I have no upside unless prices become even more irrational? Like the only way to make money on a negative yielding bond is for it to go even more negative yielding, which is just it's a very speculative form of investor. Consumer staple company is a is a much safer play, even though oh, it's an equity and the other one's fixed income, but Fixed income is just so overpriced right now that it's kind of forced people into the consumer staples and other conservative stocks. What's the biggest risk for markets in 2020? Could be the election if you're specifically focused on the U.S. There's a lot of uncertainty there, and the Sanders campaign appears to be picking up steam. So that would certainly surprise the markets. Uh, or if the Fed decides to ease off on. Sorry for the pun. But if it decides to ease up on easing, uh, then the, so much of the, the latest rally has been driven by the Fed providing more liquidity. And so I think we're kind of at their mercy to see if they want to keep providing even more. The UK faced the same risk with Labour's Jeremy Corbyn, a risk which has passed. Aren't US voters at least as risk averse as British voters? Yeah, I think that's a fair question. Uh, what I would say would be the difference is that you're coming off a very pro, pro business or at least pro markets administration in the form of, of President Trump, who's out on Twitter talking up the stock market and urging the Fed to cut interest rates and trying to do anything to make, make the Dow go up so he can claim victory. If you saw a Sanders administration that instead of being a booster for the stock market instead comes out and says we need to we need to shut down the healthcare companies we need to to nationalize all sorts of things I think that'd be a big shock just because the U.S. has been a very pro market kind of favoring you had the financial crisis where people said you had the bailouts for Wall Street and not the bailouts for Main Street and so it would be a very big change in the business environment the last Democratic administration under Obama was still quite friendly to markets. We don't know how a Sanders administration would actually play out, but certainly the messaging from his administration when it was coming into power would, would be worrisome for the market. My podcast generally focuses on either asset allocation, which is our subject here, and retirement, which financial advisors deal with on a daily basis. Maybe I can get a twofer in. You've advocated investing in Chile after a big sell-off in that market, and you actually live in in Latin America, Colombia specifically, which many retirement commentators see as a potential cost reduction strategy for the underfunded. What's your perspective on the Chilean market, on investing in Latin America in general, and in expat retirement, not that you yourself are retired, of course? <laughs> yeah, good question. I'll try to get to both of those. On uh, Chile, you had last fall, the Chilean stock market dropped by about a third in a very short period of time. Uh, there were popular protests, uh, millions, or at least hundreds of thousands of people in the streets demanding a new constitution and that the current president stepped down. He didn't step down, but he agreed to have a referendum on the constitution, which will be held in April. And investors are worried about that because Chile has the most... Uh, capitalist free markets uh, economy in South America. And it's been very good to investors over the last 25 years. And so people are worried about any disruption to that. Uh, I think people are overly concerned 
in that Chile's had socialist governments over the past few years. They had a socialist president who was elected twice, and that didn't cause any major changes to the investment regime there. And the, I think people underappreciate how wealthy Chile is on a purchasing power parity basis. The average, the median income there is $26,000 a year. That puts you closer to Europe than it does to Venezuela, Cuba, or whatever the people are saying that Chile is going to become. I don't think it's realistic to compare Chile to those other failed states in Latin America, but that's what the market has priced. On the question of investing in Latin America, I think there's a lot of opportunity in that there's there's a ton of people that don't really follow the markets here, and they only pay attention when there's big headlines. And so you'll have people that are investing when things are going well. They see it's going up. It has a nice return over the last three years or five years or whatever. So money flows in, prices get bit up too high, then some bad news hits, and everyone bails out of the markets. And generally, if you buy whenever... If it makes the front page in your country that something bad is happening down here, that's usually a good time to buy. Like in Argentina in September, you had elections go the wrong way and the Argentine market went down 40% the next day. Anyone that bought that has already done pretty well. Same for Brazil in 2017 and I think same for Chile now. And so it's useful just to, if you're interested in the region, pay attention to the market when nobody's talking about it because that's uh, you're going to get more level-headed analysis than just whenever everyone's panicking about whatever the latest riots or whatever. As for retirement, yeah, there's definitely, you can make your dollars or euros or what currency you may have go a long way here. I think uh, probably Mexico and yeah, Colombia and Ecuador our retiree favorites right now. I'd say when I talk to people that are considering retiring, a lot of times people focus too much just on how much a house costs or where the exchange rate is that day. But I've lived in Latin America for six years now and the exchange rates are constantly changing. The cost of living can go up or down between countries 20-30% a year. And so I'd say focus much more on finding a community that you're going to like, a place where it's easy to get residency where the paperwork's uh, not a problem, where you're going to be happy and be able to build a community. Don't just focus on penny pinching uh, because with a with a reasonable budget, you can you can live very well here. But I see people coming down here like, oh, I'm going to retire on $900 a month in Ecuador. And then they end up living somewhere that's not very nice. And it's like maybe spend a little more time thinking on, on what's the best overall situation for me and not just how can I save exactly the most money perceptive reasoned analysis and interesting retirement ideas check out ian's insider corner a worthy source of investment research ian bezik glad to have you on our show thank you for having me thanks for listening if you found this podcast of value i would be much obliged if you would pass it on to one other advisor to keep this fa project growing also, feel free to contact me at gill at seekingalpha.com with any feedback. This is Seeking Alpha's Gil Weinrich.